O Father, may we come before your throne hungering this morning for a word from your Holy Spirit to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 10 once again. Romans 10 once again. We'll be taking up the subject of preaching again. I didn't want to leave it alone just yet. Uh, sermon prep is a, is a, is a strange process. <laughs> it begins with a text, and then you have to develop that text, and sometimes the development of it just takes a life of its own and goes its own way and doesn't fall into the strictures and structures that we set up for it. And um, I probably went somewhere in this sermon that I wasn't intending at the outset to go, but that should be all right. The Holy Spirit is in us, is with us with the whole work of preparing and... Uh, and proclaiming a message. Um, and so there will be a, a bit of review as we go through this, just to bring us back and get us grounded again with the, what I'm calling the celebration of the gospel. It seems the apostle is celebrating the gospel and trying to get his fellow Jews to receive it with the joy that their Gentile brethren, if you will, are receiving it. And so I'm going to read once again from chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now for centuries there was. But suddenly it seems the message is that Paul is saying there's no distinction between Jew and Greek in the church. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, may we leave this place today with our feet beautified, O oh Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the apostle begins again with these words. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord, if you want to circle something in that verse, circle the same Lord. There's no other Lord. There's no other God. Any other representation of deity is a false representation. It's a superstitious longing for something that you feel isn't being met in your life. So there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call. He's over all and is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or as the old King James said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Oh, Father, we pray this morning that you add your blessing to this, the teaching, the proclamation of your holy word. So we've looked into the meaning of the apostles' words on the matter of salvation. Paul is teaching his congregation about salvation. Not only about salvation, the mechanics of it, but who's eligible for it. Who's eligible for salvation? And apparently it's this, it's this um, undistinct group of whosoevers. Paul began this chapter in much the same way as he began the previous chapter, if you remember, with a lamentation over the position of the Jews, his beloved countrymen, with regard to their awaited Savior. We saw the great tragedy of the Jewish people. They waited for many a long year, friends, many a long century, for the prophesied Messiah to appear. And then he appeared. And a mere handful of them recognized him as such. And the multitude of their number, at the most jubilant of the pilgrim feasts, the Passover, where Jews came from all over the three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, and they verbally called for the release of another and for the crucifixion of the Lord. Friends, it was Virtually, other than a few tourists, was only Jews at that event. And if you remember, he came in jubilantly a week before, and they threw down palm fronds in their own garments so that he would walk upon them as a king, so that the colt he was riding would walk upon them. They called him the Lamb of God. They called him the Son of David. And only a week later... The media had them so mixed up, they didn't know anymore what to believe. Paul, this isn't the only place he talks about it. He elaborates elsewhere, saying of the Savior and of his saving message, he said, which none of the rulers of this age knew. That's a sad thing. And he's talking about, really, the Jewish rulers, but it applies to all rulers. None of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. From 1 Corinthians 2.8, he, he writes that to the Corinthian church. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he, he wrote of these, this same group of people. He said, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, lest the light of the gospel should shine on them. So there's an enemy out there trying to blind us of the truth. It's not always easy to know the truth from falsehood the friend from the enemy. It's not always easy to know, but we do have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes with two things. Access to the truth of the Word of God and a gift called discernment so that we can have enough knowledge to discern from ourselves spiritual rights and wrongs. Theology really is important. It's the study of God. That's all it means. It's funny how the term theology has fallen on hard times in the churches. I had someone say to me recently, he said, well, you're a theological church. We just use the word of God. I'm like, (laughs) but you've probably heard language like that. I'm like, can I use a word? I mean, we use Trinity, Tertullian put it in there in the second century. We haven't stopped using it. Think it's a good word. 
And so Jesus came, and all the while the Savior was being met by the multitudes. His identity was confirmed by signs and wonders never before seen in history, never before seen in Jewish history. And they saw a lot of miracles. They have a lot of miracles on the record of their, what we call Old Testament scriptures, what they call the scriptures. And so what did he do? He came and he taught them. What would you want a Messiah to do? conscript you into the army he came and he taught them he went out among them in fact he was castigated by the elite for sitting among known sinners but he taught them he showed compassion upon them he ate and drank he dined and conversed with them he healed them for the asking he was known to have walked on water multiplied food, cast out demons, raised the dead, and he killed 2,000 pigs. Jews don't like dogs. Jews don't like pigs. And yet the multitude of his own blindly reject him. I mean, friends, if you go back to John chapters 11 and 12, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, you'll find the Pharisees are there the whole time watching. Because Martha and Mary and Lazarus were sort of a upper-class family. They're a wealthy family. They had a big home. They hosted Jesus and the disciples at their home. And of course, Lazarus dies. Jesus comes late, but he's really not late. He's right on time, right? He calls out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the Pharisees say, if we're not careful, people are going to stop believing in this guy. So what did they do? I think it's the next chapter where they, Lazarus is sitting there eating at table with them. And they say, how can we kill Lazarus again? Friends, that is someone who the God of this age has blinded. You're waiting for the Savior. What do you think he's going to do? I can hardly believe that the Apostle John did not share the sadness of Paul for his countrymen when he wrote these words. He wrote, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Friends, we have an opportunity to know who made us, who made all things. It's a celebratory moment. But then it says he came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. But he, he, so he writes, but as many as received him, he could have written, but whosoever received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now try to remember, on the, on the, on the Feast of Pentecost, that was, that was a, the third in the great pilgrim feasts. 50 days after Passover. That's what Pentecost means. 50, right? And people came by the thousands. And friends, these were Jews, because once again they were Jews there for the feast. But they saw the signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit poured himself out. But over time, the Jewish witness started to disappear. It started to turn against Christ and the apostles. And so both Paul and John lament that fact. Now, when Jesus came, friends, he didn't expect to be known by his name. He didn't expect to be known by his name or his person. 
Even John the Baptist, when he sent a disciple to inquire about his identity, Jesus said to the disciple a few things you may remember, but he didn't speak a word about the virgin birth. He didn't say, well, tell John I was, I was born of my mother and the Holy Spirit. He, he didn't say that. He said nothing of the songs of angels that sang at the announcement of his birth. That might have been something worth saying. To be honest with you, we don't really even know if John knew that. He kept silent about the temptation by Satan in the wilderness. He didn't talk about that. Rather, he referred to their prophet, to the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Nahum. He referred to the prophet, to the anciently written evidence of who he was. And so what did he say? They said, John the Baptist wants to know, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And he said, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so as was his custom, he referred to the ancient prophecies of Isaiah. I would say, if I had to pick one, I'd say Isaiah was the premier prophet. We call the major prophets. We speak of the the four major prophets, and then we talk about the minor prophets. Um, Isaiah was definitely one very well known. In fact, you read Isaiah, it reads like the New Testament. It reads like the stuff already happened. So Isaiah specifically predicted these things as the signs of the Messiah, and Jesus, know, John, would know that. Every Jew should have known it. The multitudes received him for a season, as I've said, but in the end, even they submitted to the talking points of political parties and the social media platforms of the day. You know what social media was in that day? It was gossip. Really. I've heard... I've heard preachers and commentators refer to it positively as gossip. That's how you received stuff. It moved fast. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I'm telling you, every city around uh, Bethany knew in minutes that that had happened. They had a great social network going in those days. The apostle knows that his declaration of salvation by faith was controversial. He, He knew that. The whole reference to salvation being available to whosoever will call is to drive home the point that being Jewish, although a great historical advantage with regard to recognizing his appearance, was not an exclusive path to salvation. It's whosoever, and he begins by saying, whether Jew or Greek, no distinction with regard to salvation between Jew and Greek. This came as striking news to most of the Jews who did not think they had to share eternity with Gentile dogs. The Jews were made the sole custodians of the written word of God. What an advantage. The favored nation of the Almighty. And yet the gospel of Christ speaks of a non-specific following of whosoever's. They were not, as the majority assumed, 
the only people for whom the Messiah would come to and save. The Jews were not the only people that he came to save. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And you, you, you have to wonder that some little wise guy Jewish kid in the classroom might have said, then why did God create all those other people? He even says in his word, I didn't choose you because you're the greatest of all nations, you're the smallest. You would think someone would say, what did he do with all the other people? I've met some of them, they're not bad. They're all just condemned. You would think that that would be a conversation. We have conversations like that. In fact, I'm going to bring one up toward the end of the message today to answer a few questions that these verses always seem to stir up. And so they were the custodians of the written word. Yet they were not the only people to receive the grace of God. Have you ever found it astonishing that the so-called wise men from the East recognized the time and the moment of the birth of Christ? Why would they recognize it? They went to Herod. I want you to know about the Herods. The Herods were not Jewish. I've heard people say they're Jewish. They, They were not Jewish. They were Hellenistic Jews, the Herod clan. This is Herod the Great, the first one. The wise men went to him. And, of course, he had in mind, as soon as he heard that the Savior was born, that he would kill him because the Herods really had a Messiah complex, and they assumed that out of their dynasty, the the Messiah would come. And so here's Herod, the great scholar who had access to all of the great scholars of Scripture, right, appointed by Augustus in Rome, And yet he didn't know, and these wise men from the east, maybe from Persia or Babylon, knew the Savior was coming because they saw his star? He had a star. The Jews should have known about the stars. It says right in the beginning in Genesis, and the stars would be used for what? For signs and for seasons and for days and for years. You think it would say for seasons and days and years and signs, but it says signs first. I've always found it controversial that Herod didn't know and, and the wise men knew. And chances are they didn't have the scriptures. I suppose it's possible. Scripture has always been the antidote to blindness, and yet these people were blind. Scripture is the antidote to blindness, friends. And yet, through their own hard-heartedness, they allowed themselves to be duped and deceived. Why does Paul say, Paul says it, James says it, you'll see it all throughout the New Testament. My brethren, do not be deceived. In other words, it's, it's likely and probable that even Christians will be deceived about things. So he says, don't be deceived. You can't be deceived and know you're deceived. Because that's just being stupid. Although I know some people that were deceived and knew they were deceived, but they decided to just remain stupid. Scripture's always been the antidote to blindness, to stupidity, to lack of discernment. It's always been. And yet, these people were blinded. And so the apostle reiterates what he'd, what he'd been saying since the outset of, of his epistle. It is by faith that one is saved. It is by faith. And so the question arises of faith in what? People talk about faith very blithely today. Have you noticed that? <clears throat> I've heard someone say to me one time, a young lady said, 
I think I have more faith now than I've ever had. And I said, but what's it in? She had no answer. I just have faith. It's sort of like, um, well, everything works out in the end. I've seen that on billboards. Don't worry, everything works out in the end. Which it does, but it's not so great for some. People speak so generally with regard to faith, it seems that people then and now speak of a faith that has no object. It's just a thing. Faith can only be as strong as the object of our faith. You've heard this, believe in yourself. Now, there's a sense in which I guess we can accept self-belief. I mean, I wouldn't try to do anything in life if I didn't think I had the skills and the competence and the knowledge to do it. So in a sense, it's a belief in self, a belief that I can do this. So you have a problem, and I say, I can help you with that. I'll be over. Uh, I'm quite equipped. Uh, I believe I can handle that. If that's what you mean, I'm okay with it. But I can't believe in myself for eternal things, for spiritual things, for access to the mind of God. Belief in self is, um, is an empty faith, friends. If our faith is in ourselves, in our own resources, our own abilities, then it is only as strong as we are. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your heart. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We don't believe in ourselves, not for the things that matter eternally, certainly. If our faith is in ourselves, in our own resources, in our own abilities, then it is only as strong as we are. Um, Other people have great faith in government to solve all the problems of life. Government, social programs, media, entertainment, personalities. You haven't... Watch commercials, you watch cable TV or something. I remember my father used to say, I can't wait till we pay for television. We won't have to watch commercials anymore. Oh, man, you can't even turn on cable. It's all commercials. You see a two-hour movie, you look at the guide, it's, it's on for four hours. <laughs> like, honey, what are we paying for here? <laughs> um, but you see, you, you watch a commercial, and what do they have? They have a, um, a celebrity. Say... Um, you know, a, 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 a football celebrity selling us um, baked beans or submarine sandwiches. And I'm thinking, the reason that celebrity's there is because he's given us pleasure in some way in our lives, or we've looked up for him for certain attributes. So we're going to trust that if he says Jersey Mike's is the sub you should eat, that's the one you should eat. And if he says Subway, then that's the one you're going to. I think it's Tom Brady for Subway and... Uh, um, one of the Manning brothers for, <laughs> for Jersey. But I don't know. I forget. But we, we love our celebrities today. We have faith in our entertainment personalities. I'm going to tell you, I bought something one time off a commercial because Mike Huckabee, Huckabee told me to buy it. And I said, I, I think I can trust Mike. I'll never do it again. <laughs> he was just another flack selling a product. Um, our faith is only as strong as the fickle concerns of our celebrity du jour. Du jour means of the day, for those of you who are monolingual and don't have the gift of tongues. Um, 
Your faith is only as strong as the fickle concerns of the celebrity you choose to have faith in. And we know they fail in the basic things of life all the time. That's, thankfully, that's why we have supermarket tabloids. By the way, I read them all, but I never buy them. I just, I think it's wrong for a Christian to buy them, but I'm standing there and I do read and I look at them and someone says, can you move along, sir? And I said, well, it's not done. People seem to have a sense that human icons are feeble, though. I think sometimes we catch on. And this is where the idol factories really begin, right? We, we know that our human icons are feeble gods at best, so we create for ourselves other gods to rest our faith upon. Look at the Roman Catholic world. They put their faith in a goddess figure upon whom they lavish praise and adoration and make pilgrimages to places where she's been sighted. Right? I was thinking of, uh, as I wrote that, I was thinking of Joan of Arc. Anyone know Joan of Arc? Robin Williams once made a joke about the education system today, and he said most people today think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. But that <laughs> most people today think Joan of Arc is Noah's wife. But um, <laughs> wife's, Noah's wife had no name. Joan of Arc works. She's Joan of the Ark. Noah's wife, right? But um, she heard from heaven. Do you know she was a great patron saint of, of France? She was in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War started in 1337 and ended in 1453. It was, it was actually more than 100 years. I think it was 116 years. They had a war. And um, she started hearing from angels, Mark, uh, Michael the archangel, and then from different saints and things, and led into battle. Um, and of course, she was like 19 years old, and they, and they followed her. Now, you know, historically, she's somebody... We have a book in the library by Mark Twain on Joan of Arc. So she's a real person, someone worth perhaps looking into. But um, no one had the Christian discernment at the time to say, is she really hearing from God? Like, maybe we should really do what this 19-year-old girl's telling us to do? So we create our own icons. We're, we're idol factories, The charismatic world has an idol. The charismatic churches have an idol. They've made an idol of faith. It's not Christ who saves you. In the, it's faith that saves you. It's not Christ that you depend on for things. It's your own faith. They made faith an idol. They put their faith in faith itself as though faith is a gift that turns us into gods. I don't know if you know this. I'm not making this up. This is, this is the doctrine. And as such, their followers are encouraged to conjure up for themselves any material desire, earthly pleasure, bodily power, or physical healing, not by asking, but by demanding it of God. Some of you are looking like, I never heard this before. Well, I'm glad. (laughs) You command things to come into being in the charismatic world. Faith is the idol for you. None of these aberrations is what Paul is referring to. The faith the apostle claims to have is faith in God. Not an imagined, not a manufactured deity, but the one and only. The one true God who has 
in these last days spoken to us by his son, the writer of Hebrews says. Who has appointed, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And the writer goes on to say, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholds all things by the words of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's who you have faith in. That's who Paul is saying to have faith in. The one that made you. You know the quote, scientist of today, not all, but the great scientific community today, thinks our little creation myth is very silly. I heard Bill Maher say that in, uh, to, a, to a Christian one day in some exchange. And he said, so really, he goes, you really believe in the talking snake and the whole thing? And he really made, you know, the creation story look pretty silly. And I thought, what would I say to that if someone made fun of the the creation story in Genesis. And then I thought of it. I would, I would admit it. I'd say, yeah, you know, that is pretty odd, pretty strange, a talking snake. I said, but look at the alternative, the one you believe in, Bill. You believe that nothing created everything. I will take the talking snake any day over that. I mean, it seems to me insane to think that nothing created everything. And it did it by accident. I mean, there's so many gaps in that kind of thinking. I can't even imagine. Give me a talking snake. Something, we know for a fact, someone created the worlds. And Paul says that's who we have faith in. Jesus Christ. This is the God our gospel proclaims. He's the one in whom we place our trust. Faith in the sent one. Faith in the message of the sent one. Belief in the power and person of the sent one. So from the very first chapter of the letter, Paul heralds this sublime truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Ridicule it as you will. I'm not ashamed of it, he writes. For this is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Right from the outset, he preached the gospel in this great epistle. And then he does it again for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And he quotes the ancient prophet Habakkuk. From chapter 4, he writes again, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul knows if you're going to convince a Jew, use his scriptures. And it's the same with Christians. If you're going to convince a Christian, don't just give them a bunch of accolades and things that you, uh, things that you believe. Go right to the scripture. A, a Christian, like a Jew, should respond to the scripture. And Paul goes, and he goes on from chapter 5, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who were of the law, but also to those who were of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Then he quotes from Genesis, of all places. The gospel goes back to the beginning. 
How was Abraham saved? See, the Jew knows. He's thinking, unlike the Christian, the Jew's thinking, you know, he's right. Abraham lived 500 years before the law. There's no way he could say he's under the law. Moses came 400 plus years after Abraham. Again from chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. All the way through. Through whom we also have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. Chapter 8, very famously, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's assurance of faith once you get it. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. From chapter 9, he says, what shall we say then? This had to really bother some of the Hebrew listeners. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness. Friends, pursuit of righteousness never attained it. And then he says, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They thought works was the way. Now hold on to that, because that's going to answer some questions for us in the end. And so the prophesied stumbling stone, they knew Christ would be a stumbling stone. I mean, God knew Christ would be a stumbling stone. He knew the gospel would be a stumbling stone. The stumbling stone in the gospel of Christ is the Christ of the gospel. It reveals the impotence of human works to attain what only God can offer and what only God can give. So the stone is that the whosoevers of the world are those who accept God's offer, not as a work of their own merit, but as it is in truth, a work of God from beginning to end. And so Paul entreats his Hebrew brethren to recognize the fulfillment of the ancient scriptures. He's not just arguing. He's pointing out what they're supposed to have known. I'm going to get to why they don't know it, by the way. It glorifies God if we humbly refuse to see our own works as our own righteous contributions. And if we do, as Paul said he did, count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. From Philippians chapter 3. And so we fall to our knees and confess our belief in Christ as Savior, the sent one who died for us on the cross. He died for our sins, and so we die to human effort. We fall on the mercy of God which is offered to all but only given to those who believe. See, that's the thing about preaching. There's a general call to all and there's an efficacious call so that no one is without excuse. You see, everyone hears it. That's the idea. We know that not everyone actually hears it, but we're sent out to preach it to everyone indiscriminately, right? 
And so Paul arrives at the, of the dilemma of chapter 10. That's what I'm going to call it, the dilemma of chapter 10. And he says, how shall they call on it? You, you're saved by whosoever will call, but how shall you call in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You know, this idea of preaching is a new thing on the scene. You know, in the Old Testament, in the synagogues, there wasn't a lot of preaching going on. There was a lot of what you see in a lot of the high uh, liturgical churches today. You see a lot of rote memorization. Of You see a lot of uh, responsive reading. And it's very good. I remember as a young Catholic boy, I still remember some of the, uh, some of the uh, great creeds that we still live by as Protestants. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, right? I still remember the wording. Jesus Christ is true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. But you know, without the preacher to go through and tell them what the words meant, they didn't know. They just knew how to say them. I mean, I can look back at my life and a mere handful, I, I hesitate to call it a handful of my Catholic family and friends actually know anything about faith in Christ. But they can go to a service and repeat and, and know when to come in and know what to say. But in the Old Testament, in the synagogues, they read the scriptures. There's no doubt. But as I've told you, Hebrew by that time was a dead language. You learned it in school, but you didn't speak it in the streets. Spoke Aramaic, another Semitic dialect. Already dead. The Babylonians killed it. That's the first thing you do when you conquer a nation. You take away their culture. You make them speak your language and you don't let their children learn their own language. It was lost. Go to the book of Nehemiah where Ezra comes out and he mounts the wooden pulpit and he reads the word of God to the people for the first time in hundreds of years. And they wept. They wept partially because they were amazed at how favored they were of God. And they wept also because they didn't understand the words. And Ezra had to send secretaries out into the crowds to teach them the word. Preachers are there to explain things, to elucidate. That means give light to things. So a person will not call upon another if he's not recognized that the other's able and willing to help. Who are you going to call when you're in trouble? Someone you think can help. You know, who's a kid going to call when he's broken down on the highway? Probably dad. Unless there's a really good, uh, uh, competent friend nearby. You know, <laughs> Joe hit a deer one time down on, uh, uh, tw- I don't know why I'm laughing, it's not funny at all. I uh, hit it, but, but it, that week, he, I think he hit three deers. <laughs> three deer. Um, but it happened as he was leaving from, I don't know, the Chichelis or you know, from the Listenberg's house. And Eric was closer and he said, I'll go. <laughs> but you know that you got a guy whose competence coming to help. You don't call someone who you don't think will help or you, or you don't think can help, you know. You don't, some, you don't call someone to come out on the highway and rescue you when, who doesn't have a car. They're going to come out on the bicycle and rescue you. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, you call on someone who can do it. But how does a person conclude that a man's able if he's never heard of the man? Like, how do you know to call upon Christ if no one told you about Christ? 
That's Paul's rhetorical dilemma that he posits for our inspection. The progression is self-explanatory. We're saved by calling on the name of the Lord, but no one calls from ignorance. That's where the preacher comes in. No one calls from ignorance. It must come by enlightenment. It must come through knowledge. It must come through confidence in him as an able savior. And someone, each of us who calls, have at some time in our lives come into contact with the herald of the Lord. That is the preacher. John the Baptist is the example Matthew tells us of this great preacher, that this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He is what? The voice. He's the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Preaching is like crying in the wilderness. I'm crying in the wilderness of a, dare I say, God-forsaken country. I hope it's hyperbole. The wilderness of men's hearts. Preaching is a voice that cries into the wilderness. You know, when I was in college, I had a roommate. He was Jewish. He's a friend I grew up with. He had just graduated from an Ivy League school, and he came and he stayed with us. We had sort of a little dormitory thing going over what my last year at uh, Stonehill. And I'd known him, and he was a good guy to come in, and I knew he could pay the rent because we had five guys in there, and everyone had to be able to pay. The, you know how that stuff goes. And he came in, and he was Jewish, and, of course, I was totally agnostic at the time, even though I was in a Catholic school and had read the Old and New Testaments. Read the Old and New Testaments, didn't find God. There's something significant there. But in any event, I hadn't seen him in many, many years, about 30 years and we went out to Washington, to, to, in fact, to Henry's wedding in 2020. And he lives in Seattle, so I went to visit him. And um, I talk, we talked about the ministry. We talked about, you know, I'm a different person than he knew then. And so was he, and he was retired. He was very successful. He lives on a high rise in the city of Seattle. And um, so he got interested in what I was doing. So he started listening to the sermons. And he never heard preaching before, ever. And he said, I'm amazed. I've never heard anyone combine faith and reason. See, our faith isn't stupid, blind faith like people want to pretend it is. It's based on some reasonable facts, right? He said, I never heard anyone combine faith with reason. And then I gave him my book, I Am Peter. It's a historical novel on the life of Christ and the apostles. And he read it. And there's a lot of, you know, almost all the words of Jesus in the book are actual scriptural words. And here he is a Jew. In fact, he's a Levite. And he was amazed that I remembered that from the old days. Which means he's a priest. He had never heard the gospel. This is an educated man, a man who's been in the in our economy and high places and companies and investments and things has never come across the gospel of Christ. Love the book. Wrote me a long, um, you know, de- uh, description of his understanding of what it was and he, um, he gave it a, a lot of accolades. But just so you know, it is a wilderness out there. Not everybody receives it. It's amazing to me who doesn't get it sometimes. And I want to talk about that as I, as I close. But um, 
We can't call from ignorance. You can't call on Jesus if you don't know who he is. And if someone doesn't tell you, preach to you, then you don't know. So when a man enters the stage, he receives an introduction. Well, John the Baptist was the MC, And he introduced Jesus Christ. And then he said, I must decrease and he must increase. And so the MC slinks away. And the, and the real event steps up to the pulpit. And so the Savior took center stage of history at that time. And it's in him and only him in whom we must have faith. Yet it is the preacher that makes him known. It is the preacher that searches the scriptures and provides the evidence that the Savior that is on the scene is the one prophesied to be there from the very beginning. He's no imposter, he's no interloper, and he shouldn't be a surprise. Faith is access to grace, but preaching is access to faith. And so every important voice in history with regard to the gospel of Christ were eminent preachers. John preached. Jesus preached. We read, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter and John were preeminently preachers. And so Luke writes in the book of Acts, now as they wrote to the people, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Preaching's powerful, and the enemies of preaching know it. And so when the apostles were arrested for preaching, for preaching Christ, the authorities let them go with a specific directive. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. The enemy always tries to silence the preaching. You're saved by believing, but if you don't know, you can't call on him. Even the enemies of the Lord knew that it was the preaching of Christ that was the great enemy of established authority and false religion. So they sought to silence the preachers. That's what you always do. Now, I spoke last week of the call to preach that goes out to all believers as distinct from the call to special messengers like prophets and preachers throughout the ages. I call the call to all the Ezekiel principle from Ezekiel chapter 3. You can look it up there or in last week's notes. And the call to special messengers of Christ as the Jeremiah principle from Jeremiah chapter 20. That the word of God in the preacher has a life of its own that bursts out of the preacher. Let me offer you this principle from the book of Acts after the martyrdom of Stephen. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, what I'm trying to do is elucidate the difference between the Ezekiel and Jeremiah principles that I'm teaching on here. Because what's interesting here in Acts 8, 4, and 5 is the word for preach in Acts in, in verse 4 is different than the word for preach in verse 5. Now, that's significant, it seems. In English, it's the same word. But in the Greek, it's a different word. And you've got to wonder, so closely juxtaposed, why would Luke use a different word in each case? Well, the word in verse 4 is evangelizo, and you can imagine what that means. That usually refers to the gospel. Evangelizo is the good news, glad tidings, right? And the voicing of it. 
It means to bring glad tidings and generally refers to the gospel, the lexicon says. But in verse 5, it's the word caruso, which refers to a herald, someone preaching like a John the Baptist, right? So we're all preachers. The private life of every believer is not as private as we thought, though. There's a sense in which we are all preachers, and I'm sending you all out to preach the gospel and bring in the harvest. Jesus said, the, the fields are ripe for harvest, but the laborers are few, remember? So we need laborers, people who will talk about the gospel in a general way with people that come across their paths. That's the evangelizo type of preaching. Peter writes of the responsibility, and he notes that it remains a responsibility regardless of the danger that it presents. Friends, I lost friends by preaching to them. I did, I have to say. But Peter says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. No, nobody really threatened me or anything. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Early on when we received the gospel and I was talking about it with all my friends, one by one we saw we didn't have much in common. We had a friend, good friend, his name was, his name was Sully. And we went over to Sully's house and he and his wife were there and she asked a question about something to do with the difference between what we believe and Catholic belief. And Sully turned to her and he said, I thought we weren't going to talk about that with them. In other words, they had planned to stay friends with us so long as we didn't go into those subjects. There are certain inevitable questions that come up whenever this section of Scripture is taught and declared. And the question is, what is the position of those who have not heard? Have you ever wondered about that? Some people don't hear. Paul says emphatically and without condition that if you can't hear, you can't know. In other words, how can a person be held accountable for the one way of salvation if he's never heard of that way? The skeptic or even the innocent inquirer may rightly ask, can a man be saved having never heard the gospel of Christ? Now, you must have asked that at some point in your life, right? Now, I'm going to say something. I hope I don't astound you too badly, but there's nowhere in the passage does Paul teach exceptions to the rule. He doesn't teach exceptions. But see, it's a tendency in modern man to try to reconcile the exception before we digest the rule, and the apostle doesn't play that game with us. And my example for that is we we talk about wives submitting to their own husbands. It's pretty unconditional in Scripture, and it's all throughout the New Testament, right? It's in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 5, it's in Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, the same thing. Wives, submit to your husbands. Even if they don't obey the word, you obey your husband according to the word. You know, things of that nature. And so, but people always want to know the exceptions. Of course, Paul didn't teach the exceptions. However, there are certainly reasonable exceptions to that that we would accept as church members. If we're to be honorable to certain women who are abused by the one whose role it is to protect and defend them, and that under such circumstances, exceptions are granted. I would say to you that God does not do something. 
I would say that to say that God does not do something is a safer course theologically than to say that God cannot do something. Right? Sometimes you could just say, well, he doesn't do it that way, at least not usually. Right? But he can do it if he wants to. Right? That's why I don't... I have never become an all-out cessationist that the sign gifts are gone. They are definitely diminished. There's no question in that from those early days. But why would I say they're gone? Is like God can't use them again if he has a need? I'm not, I just don't think I have to go there to be um, reasonably uh, acquainted with the scriptures. So I don't say God can't do something. I say that normally he doesn't. And the questions of exceptions usually arise out of this American tendency to equity and fairness because none of us likes to think of an unfair God. However, as I've tried to explain in the election controversies, and I'm not talking about the presidential elections. I'm talking about the Romans 9 unconditional election controversies, all right? I have problems with, I have problems with one, but not with the other. Romans 9, I'm, I'm perfectly at peace with. Um, we must not imagine a path for sinners apart from knowledge of God, nor may we manufacture one, right? We must not imagine a path for sinners apart from knowledge of God, nor may we manufacture one. There have been some great commentators who said such things as, those who have not heard cannot be held accountable to the gospel, and so are not condemned. Some have said that those who have not heard are automatically saved. Now, I'll tell you why those things are not good options. There's been various theories adopted to try to create for ourselves a kinder, gentler deity than the one who's revealed in Paul's epistle. But I would say that it's not our duty to present a God who is more equitable than the one we find in Scripture. And I would warn against saying that God cannot do something, that it is quite out of his hands to save a person, an aborigine of a culture that's remote and untouched by the gospel. You've heard people ask about that. What about people in foreign lands who just have never heard? Can they be saved? Of course they can be saved. The answer is, of course. God can do all things. And remember, you're not condemned for not believing in Christ, you're already condemned. Before Christ came on the scene, Jesus said it in John chapter 3. Remember, you're not condemned for not believing the gospel. Jesus said you are condemned already, John 3.18. The question has come up on other fronts as well. It's been suggested that infants that die in infancy are automatically saved. Have you ever heard that? It cannot be so. In fact, we know from Romans 9 it's not so. Because the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. For Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. It's been reasoned that the secluded heathen who is totally ignorant of the gospel is judged by God on the basis of what he does not know and on the basis, or rather on the basis of what he knows and on the basis of the moral conduct that he instinctively abides by. We say, well, we'll give him another, we'll give him another um, standard. But then, if that's true, 
That's a, that's a works theology for him, which we know can't be the truth. I would say it's biblically untenable because that would mean that the ignorant man is judged by his works and in some cases has measured up to the perfect holiness of God apart from a sacrifice. Now I know that some of these theories are attractive and they're comforting to us, but if any of them is reliable, then the, that would mean that the preaching of the gospel is a liability. Friends, if the heathen tucked away in some little corner of the Amazon is going to be saved because he has not heard the gospel, why on earth would you preach it to him? You put him in grave danger. And if the infant that dies in infancy is automatically saved, then let's pray God kills us all in our infancy. Because life is a mere moment. Eternity is forever. This is why... Almost every of the great confessions has adopted a doctrine called elect infants. Some are chosen, some are not. We don't know on what basis. Some among the aborigine is chosen. Maybe my friend can come to a knowledge of the Lord that we don't see. Look at all the people in history who were saved by other means than preaching. We talk about reading a lot. I had a person say, I don't come to church anymore because it's the only time I have to be home alone with God. So I read the word between myself and God. He thought that was a good reason not to come to church. I didn't think that. I think that's a terrible reason. But I can't say men don't come to the Lord through reading because Luther and Augustine both claim to have come through reading the scriptures as well as others. Look at Paul. Paul Paul wasn't preached to. He came, right? The thief on the cross was not preached to. So I would never say God can't do something. I would just say it's his normal course to preach. It's kind of like I said earlier. Normally, if we want to get food, we have to plant it. We have to water it, right? We have to reap it, harvest it. That's the normal way. But every now and then, God does something out of the ordinary. Seed time and harvest are our perpetual seasons of life. And every now and then, God goes against those standards and does something on his own. It's the same with miracles. Normally we get healed because we go and get diagnosed by a professional and he gives us a regimen, you know, a diagnosis. He he gives us uh, medicines, various medicines, and then we get healed. That's usually the process. And we pray through that Because it's God still working in all of that. My own heart surgeon came out and told some of you, keep praying, I've done all I can do. And he was an agnostic Jew also. But it's always God that does the healing, and there's a normal way of doing it, and then there are different ways that he does it. The normal, customary way for being saved is for hearing a sermon by a preacher. That's how it's done. Have you ever wondered why there's so many translations? There's so many translations because people got tired of hearing the gospel and they wanted to read it for themselves. But they didn't have a preacher to tell them what certain words meant, so they took those words out and put more simplistic words in. Instead of propitiation, they put in something like deliverance. Right? Instead of ransom, they put in something like um, freedom or liberty. Instead of homosexuality, they put in... um, 
sexual immorality. You see what I mean? They made it palatable. And isn't it interesting that in the information age, we have all these translations now, right? And we have all the blogs and internet access and tracts and books and commentaries. And we love to brag the Bible, still the bestseller in the world. And the Christian witness is the weakest it's ever been in history. Very, very weak. In the, in the marketplace of ideas, we barely even have a voice. And look at all the stuff we have. But we got rid of the preachers. The preacher was there to demand something of people. There's something human in the interaction between preachers and hearers that reading just doesn't do. Reading's a good supplement, but don't ever think it's going to replace being preached to. Because as soon as it gets hard, you just can just skip over that part. I would say to you, though, though you can be saved in these other ways, that they are not the customary way. If it was, then we would see so many more conversion and conversions in these days of the so-called information age. Because if you put together the information age with total depravity, what do you have? The misinformation age, which we all know is true, right? <clears throat> We have more access to books and tracts and websites and blogs and Bible apps and commentaries, not to mention Bible translations, than any other age could have even imagined. And yet the power of the church does not reflect the information, the information age, as the great age of Christian witness. I don't think this is the great age of Christian witness, do you? doesn't seem like it. And I'm a student of history. Rather, the age of reading has hurt the churches. Friends, could you imagine a revival because everybody went to his own corner and, and read a passage? It never happened that way. Revivals always broke out because someone preached. Jonathan Edwards preached. Uh, George Whitfield preached. The Wesleys preached throughout the land. The age of reading has hurt the churches more than helped with regard to a robust Christian witness in society. I've always told you, and I hold to it this morning, that our God loves to be proclaimed. He wants people to come out to the house of God on the Lord's Day morning and hear a preacher defend the gospel. Give a defense, Peter said. Apologia. Give a defense. Any real growth, both spiritual and numerical in Christianity, will always be the product of a fearless preaching ministry. Our Father, in Jesus' name, may the preachers never be silenced. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.